Well, I thought that was the end of the song, but we didn't have the red end, so <laughs> didn't know what to do. Talk about habits. Uh, good morning, everyone. If you would, open a Bible with me. We're going to be in Psalm 88. Psalm 88. <clears throat> if you would, turn over to that place. We have a number of visitors with us, and as always, we want you to feel welcome. We are really glad that you're here, and we want you to know that anything that we can do to help you to know more about God or how to serve God, the things that we're doing and studying and talking about this morning, uh, we'd love to have an opportunity to have a conversation with you about that. But most of all, we just want to thank you for being here and for your interest in spiritual things. It has been a good morning for us to think about God's things, and uh, hopefully the things that we're going to study this morning will benefit you and maybe give expression to some things uh, that you have felt in the past or maybe are even feeling right now. It's funny, we never know, uh, when I get up to speak, I never know what's going on in everybody's head. And I never know where everybody is at this moment in time. And uh, I am certain that we're all in different places. And for those who are visiting or those who are watching online, there are different things that have prompted you to be here or to tune in. And so I, I can't know how the words I'm going to, I've prepared are going to fall on your ears. But here is what I know. I know that. Whatever your need may be, there are things that God has spoken about them and that God can help you. And if we can help you to connect with God, we would love to be able to do that. So it may be that this lesson does not fit where you're at in this moment, but it may be in six months or a year or two, you may look back and say, I need to pull that one back out and think about those things again. Psalm 88 and verse 13. Psalm 88, 13. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? The psalmist here is a devoted servant of God, but God won't listen to him. He cries and cries again, and God does nothing. And so he says, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? There is something that is so terrible and so distressing and so helpless about being in desperate need and calling out to the God that we serve and hearing nothing back. God says nothing. There is only silence. And that produces an emotion in us. It makes us feel confused. It is a time when all the things we've always heard about God don't seem to go well with the reality we are experiencing about God. And that tension confuses us. Our theme for this year is that we are letting our souls sing. We are running through the Psalms and we are stressing different themes that the psalmists take up. And so this morning, I want us to pursue the the situation or the thought or the experience that makes psalmists cry out like these psalmists do. And the cry that we're going to study this morning is the cry that I'm confused. It's one thing to say, you know, we're letting our souls sing when we're talking about the greatness of God. Or we're letting our soul sing and we sing Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Boy, those songs sound great. But tell you, what doesn't sound great is God, I don't understand. God, this is strange. This is not right. Where are you? What are you doing? And so I want us to take a moment and think about those songs. We might say they're songs in a minor key. They're songs that are a little, have a little tension behind them and sometimes some anger and frustration behind them. And yet to know this is the way God's people have dealt with these emotions in the past. These are the songs we don't sing in church. These are the emotions that we don't talk about in church because these are the emotions that have that darker side to them. And I want us to think about them for a moment this morning. First of all, 
there is a set of psalms that talk about in this language, why do you hide your face? This is Psalm 88. We're going to look at another psalm also in this respect. Psalm 88 and verse 1. The text says, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. So I keep praying to you. Listen to me. Verse 3. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. So my soul is full of troubles, he says. I'm close to death. I am right at the grave. But more than that, he says, God, I know you have done this to me. Verse 6, you put me in the depths of the pit. Verse 7, your wrath lies heavy upon me. Is he sick? I don't know. Is he being attacked? I don't know, but I don't think it's hyperbole to say I'm at the point of death and I'm crying out to you to save me. And yet there's nothing. In verse 8, he says, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. So on top of it all, he says, you made my companions to shun me. Now I feel alone on top of the suffering, sort of like Job who not only has all these bad things happen to him, but then the people who should be comforting him are instead not a comfort at all. Now the questions come. Verse 9. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? He says, I keep praying every day. And yet his questions are questions of confusion. You can hear the confusion in them. He says, I know you can work wonders, but can you work wonders for the dead? If you let me die, then you've just waited too long. I know you can do this. Why won't you? Here you could save me and help me now. Why would God allow evil people to live and not save his servants? Verse 13. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Why do you cast my soul away? Why are you turning away? Why do you hide your face? I suffer your terrors. I experience your wrath. You have caused this. He says in verse 18, you have done it. And the song ends. That's it. No resolution. No opportunity to praise. No answers. Just confusion. It's as if the psalmist says, God, here's all my stuff. Here's what I'm thinking. Now I don't hear anything from you. Go with me over to Psalm 44. Psalm 44. This psalm is the same tone, but is a little bit different because it has more of a group feel. It is more about the nation than just one person. Psalm 44 and verse 1. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. 
For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. So this is great. He says, God, we know what you did back in the day. It was awesome. We've heard all these stories. Our parents have always told us about the great conquering that you brought to your people when they came into the land of Canaan. Verse 4, he says, You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. So the psalmist says, I trust in you, not my own bow or my own sword or my own strength. Instead, you are our boast. That sounds pretty great so far, especially after that downer of a psalm we just read, right? This is sound, okay, we're upbeat, we're, things are going great, we praise God forever, until verse 9. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sound of sight of the enemy and avenger. So you see how the tone turns. He says, yeah, we've trusted you, we trusted you, but what have you done? You have disgraced and rejected us. You sold us, he says in verse 12. You have abandoned us. And our neighbors now, they taunt us and ridicule us. So even though I trusted you, even though we trusted you, you have done nothing to repay that trust. And so there is confusion. Verse 17. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So it gets even worse because he says, we would understand if we had gone to a different God and we had forsaken God's law in some way and God was punishing us. That would make sense. We wouldn't be confused then, but we haven't done it. That's not what's happened. Instead, you have rejected us for no reason we can perceive. So we trust you. You're supposed to be this God of great things and you are nowhere to be found. Verse 23, awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Remember, it's what we read back in Psalm 88. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Why are you sleeping? Get up, help us. We need you. And yes, he is speaking to God. These are the psalms that we sing when our prayers are not answered and we don't understand why. Sometimes we hear so much about the blessing of prayer that we neglect the dark side here. That sometimes God says no. God does not answer. And that can bring confusion and frustration for us. We begin to question, did I do something wrong? Is God punishing me in some way? Or maybe God isn't 
what I've always heard he was, you know. I read all these passages about all the great things God does. Maybe that's just, maybe he's not open for business anymore. Maybe I misread it. Maybe I'm the one who's wrong. How can it be that the God who tells me to ask and seek and knock could hide his face when I need him the most? And what kind of feelings does that produce in us? It makes us angry. It makes us frustrated. It makes us disappointed. It makes us confused. And those are emotions we don't talk about a lot in church. See, in church, we want to talk about all the great things, the simple things, the easy things, the things we understand. And yet here are places where God's people say, I don't get it. I don't understand where God is when I need him. Now, it may help us to know that we are not the first to really grapple with unanswered prayer. In fact, some of the great people in the Bible are told no by God. Elijah, Job, Jonah, all three pray to die. They ask God to kill them. And God just seems to shrug them off. Moses prays to God to blot him out of God's book in place of Israel so that Israel is not blotted out. And God says, basically, uh, Moses, that doesn't work that way. He gets told no. James and John come to Jesus and say, can we have the right and left hand in your kingdom? And Jesus says, you don't even know what you're talking about. Plus, it's not mine to give it. He tells them no. Maybe more substantially, David asks God to save his son. And God says no. Paul asks three times for Jesus to take away the thorn in the flesh. And Jesus says no. Jesus himself prays in the garden. Take this cup away from me. And my understanding is that God tells him no. So when we are told no by God or our prayers are unanswered, we are in very good company. But the problem is, and I think the source of our confusion in moments like that, is that we wonder what reason is there that this wasn't answered. We don't know why and we really want to know why. Why do you hide your face? We can understand it. We can handle it. We just want to know why, and we are confused when it happens. When we sing our confusion, when we let our soul sing the way the psalmists do, what it does is it does not say, I have answers to this. Did you notice the psalmists don't have answers? All they have is questions. What we are saying instead is that I am going to bring my questions to God. I am not leaving this relationship just because I'm confused. I am still here. There are a couple of places, these are familiar texts, but I think we are going to apply them this morning in an unfamiliar way. This is 1 Peter 5 and verse 7, where Peter says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And Paul says something similar in Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So what we're talking about here is praying but not praying in a way that says we're going to have answers and solutions for every question that plagues us. It is praying in a way that says I'm going to take everything I'm feeling and dump it on him. I'm going to cast it on him. I'm going to make my requests and let God handle it. We're going to say to God, why do I pray and pray that I can have a baby? And you keep telling me no. Why do I ask again and again for relief from this temptation? 
and you keep telling me no? Why do I ask again and again for you to change the heart of this person so that they will receive the gospel or so that they will just be kind to me and you keep telling me no? Why do I keep praying for opportunities to share the gospel and they keep not opening up? Why do I keep praying for a way out of this situation? Why do I keep praying for you to change the heart of this abusive parent or this dead-end job and you keep telling me no and I suffer Not because of anything I have done, but because you are not here. You have hidden your face from me. Singing our confusion means that we bring those big, hurtful problems and we say, God, here it is and I don't get it. And I cast my cares on you and I make my requests of you. Why are you hiding your face? I don't know. I don't understand. I am confused. That's a practice Christians need. Because while the Bible tells us everything we need to know to be right with God, it does not tell us everything we're ever curious about knowing, everything we ever wish we knew. Instead, sometimes it leaves us confused. I want to read a second kind of psalm. That is, it asks the question, not why do you hide your face, but what about your name? Let's go to Psalm 79. Psalm 79. That may not be something that jumps out at us, what about your name, but it certainly is something that Bible writers would have thought about and stressed. This psalm speaks to confusion on a national scale. This is the psalm Brother Don read for us this morning. It is a psalm that follows in the aftermath of the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. Remember, the Babylonians have come in, taken over, taken almost all the people into captivity... And now the city is in ruins, including the temple. Psalm 79 and verse 1. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. So he says this is an unprecedented tragedy. It is a temple defiled and destroyed, a city in ruins. And the people who are slain, he says in verse 2, are the faithful. And now the, the dead outnumber the survivors. Now they are prisoners, he says in verse 11, in a foreign land. Now they are taunted, he says in verse 4. And now there is this outburst in verse 5. Look at it. How long, O Lord? Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that don't know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. So the question is, how long does this have to last? Yeah, we get it. You were angry and we suffered, but is this forever? Are you going to be angry with us forever? And it is not that the psalmist here is saying we don't deserve this. We deserve better. That is certainly not the case because he's going to say in verse 8, don't remember our former iniquities. And in verse 9, deliver us and atone for our sins. So they know that they've done wrong and they deserve to be punished. But the question is, how long is the punishment? Is this just going to last forever? He is asking God to come through for him anyway, in spite of all of that. Why? Verse 9, help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? 
Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Do it for the sake of your name. Specifically, in verse 10, they say, Why should the nations badmouth you? Saying, where is your God? Because when God's people are defeated, in the ancient mind, God has been defeated. God has lost. Maybe even the Jews felt this way. You know what? Our God is not powerful enough to defeat the God of the Babylonians. He was vanquished. Maybe never to return. And so when they taunt the people of God, they taunt God. Look at verse 12. It says, the taunts with which they have taunted you. So he sings out of his confusion. Have you quit defending your name, God? Have you thought about what people are going to say about you? What about your name? How will this situation bring you glory? I mean, in what way does the raised remnants of Jerusalem glorify Jehovah God? What about your name? Verse 13, then. There is an upbeat note, but we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. So it still ends with confidence in Jehovah that calms that anger and translates it into hope. This psalm is very similar, by the way, to another psalm that we're not going to study this morning in Psalm 137, where the captives in Babylon are taunted by the Babylonians who say, sing to us a song of Zion. Tell us about Jerusalem, how great it is. And they say, how can we sing the songs of Zion when we're in a foreign land? It's confusion. I mean, we want to remember Zion, but Zion's so far away and it's been destroyed. See, we know, sitting in the position we do in history, we know that the Babylonians are about to be conquered too, and that eventually all the Israelites will go back to their land. They don't know that. For them, this looks like the new normal. The new normal is there is no Jerusalem. And Jehovah has been defeated. So, this question. It speaks to the fact that in normal times, everything makes sense. You know, in normal times, Jehovah is in his temple and all his people are there in the land and they're all serving him. The big problem in normal times is some people don't want to serve him. But this is not a normal time because now Jehovah is not in his temple. The temple has been destroyed. The city has been abandoned. And there is nothing left to say that's what Israel is. Nothing is normal anymore. Does that sound familiar? We say that a lot the last couple of years here. The psalmist wrestle with that. What do we do when there's no nation to go back to? And if Babylon is just going to win, what about God's name? If God's people are destroyed, then what about God's reputation? I want to remind you, of the perspective of the Bible writers for just a moment. I'm just going to put a series of passages on the board here. I want you to think about how God thinks about his name as a a way of letting the nations know of his glory. He says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And boy, it does. When God's people are carried out of of the exodus out of Egypt, everybody hears about it. Rahab... 40 years later, is terrified. We know what your God can do because of the plagues. God's name proclaimed. And then Moses says to God, Exodus 32, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? See, this is on Mount Sinai when God is so angry and Moses is is talking to God saying, no, no, no. Why should the Egyptians badmouth you because your people couldn't survive? Numbers 14, again, Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. 
For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, it's because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them that he has killed them in the wilderness. So again, what are the nations saying? What's the gossip? What's going on in the water coolers of the ancient world? What are they saying about God and his name? Joshua says to God, For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? And Ezekiel 20, But I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they live. I just want to remind you, this is one of God's concerns and it should be one of the concerns of his people. How events in our world demonstrate or do not demonstrate the greatness of God. So let me bring that home to today. Sometimes we look around at our world and we just sort of shake our heads. Consider the people who call themselves Christians in our world. We are divided and distracted. So many people wear the name of Christian and so few of them are united. There are so many words, and there is so little wisdom. There is so much need for Jesus, and yet there is so little interest and receptiveness. There are so many Christians, and there are so few disciples. There are so many churches, and there is so little humility. Have you thought about it? How is it that someone could look at the world that we live in and say, Yep, Jesus must be reigning. This is definitely Jesus' world. I mean, you can tell because because of what? I certainly, personally, do not look at Jesus' people and say, their behavior makes it obvious that God is in charge. Or maybe it's just that we see the direction of our world and the character of our leaders, and the spiritual climate of our society. And it just doesn't seem to match up with God at all, does it? And so when we see that, what emotion does that produce in you? You know something biblically, right? You know that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. You know that God is supreme, that he rules among the nations, the most high rules in the kingdoms of men. You know that, but what do you see? And then what does that conflict produce in you? It produces an emotion that when you really look hard at it, it makes you say, I'm confused. I don't get it. What the psalmists do is they reach out to God and say, what about your name? What are you up to? We don't understand, but we know that we need you. A couple of thoughts. First, I think it helps to say that we're not the first to feel that way. That this is an old emotion. Second, it's important to say that God can handle that confusion and frustration. He wants to hear it and he can handle it. Third, I think it's important to say verse 13 gives us ground for hope. Did you see that? We are your people and we're going to continue to praise you and to give you thanks from generation to generation. I believe what this psalm teaches us is that it's okay to be confused And to let your soul sing out of that confusion. What are you doing, God? I don't see it. It doesn't make sense. And if you can, add in at the end. 
but I will trust you anyway. I will praise you anyway. And I will give thanks anyway. Third question. Let's go to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. The third question is, uh, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the wicked prosper? Psalm 73 centers around this question. It is a faith-challenging, heart-rending question that nearly drives a believer in God to despair. Psalm 73 in verse 1. He says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I was envious, he says, of the wicked's prosperity. I wonder if he had a particular person in mind. You know, it's one thing to talk about the wicked prospering. It's another thing to see that person, know how wicked they are, and then watch them succeed. I was envious of the prosperity. And he describes what he was thinking. Verse 4, For they, the wicked, have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. So his point here is, uh, the wicked seem to have no problems. Now, I don't think that would bear out under closer inspection. I don't think if you really talk through them, through the problems with these people, they would say, no, I don't have any problems. But you get his point, right? Boy, it sure looks like they're doing well. Everything I can see shows them succeeding even in ways that the righteous don't. And that is how he almost stumbles. Verse 13, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So this is how he almost stumbled. Remember back in verse 2, he said that. So he begins to doubt whether he should even serve God. What's the point? If it's not going to make any difference in my life, if everybody who does wicked things is better off, maybe I should do wicked things too. In vain, I have kept my heart clean. So what helps him resolve the problem? Verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. So in the sanctuary, in deep worship, he finally grasped something he had not seen before. Verse 18. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Now you might be confused as to what changes in him here. I believe that the essence of what the psalmist, the change in his mind, has to do with a renewed sense of time. That it is one thing to look at people and say, man, it just seems like they are set up. And he says, but when I went into the sanctuary, when I really thought about it, you zoom out a little bit from the moment you're in. Think about 10, 20, 30 years. What happens? So, well, things change a little bit over time. And specifically, he says, they don't really succeed long term the way I thought they did. You set them in slippery places. Ultimately, they are not the successful ones. So you zoom out far enough. You have that divine perspective. And suddenly your perspective changes. And you see this is not really an advantage. It is merely a temporary seeming advantage for them. Verse 21, 
When I, my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. So now he regrets the way he used to think. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So now he places his confidence in God. This question, why do the wicked prosper? Often gives us confusion. I'm talking about wicked people who cut corners and yet they get ahead by cutting corners. I'm talking about that feeling you have. Do you have this feeling like I do? When you're driving down the road and somebody flies past you doing 90. Where's the police? This is not fair. And yet they go on and they get there so much faster than me. I wish I could do that. But of course I'd get the ticket. Doesn't seem fair, right? And it, it just gets at us. Wicked people treat other people like garbage. And then it works for them. They get ahead. They're unfaithful to their commitments. And nothing happens. Everybody still reveres them. The world praises them and they get to be number one. And that just doesn't make sense. That just doesn't seem right, does it? It doesn't seem fair. And so it confuses us. Now there's a lot more to say about all of that. For one, I would ask the question, is their life really as great as it appears? I think sometimes we think that wealth would make us feel better about everything that's a problem in our lives. And that's not really the case at all. But are they really secure? Are they really loved? Don't people just love to see successful people fail? There's a lot more than just success or prosperity. But when we zoom out far enough, we see their moment in the sun is just a moment. And that's it. And Christians live on a different time scale. But the point of this psalm and the point of bringing it up in this lesson is that when we see it close up, in that moment, we feel something. It is confusion. It is anger. It is frustration. This isn't right. And what I am saying is we need to sing that to tell God and to ask Him, why are you allowing this? I've been thinking about this a lot this week. And... I was talking to Brent. We don't have a lot of confusion songs. You know, you think about, well, what, what would we sing? Do we say, this is letting my soul sing. Well, let's, let's get all the confusion songs out here. We don't have any songs called, Why Do You Hide Your Face? That doesn't sound like a great topic for a song, does it? We don't have any songs that say, what about your name? God, I don't understand what you're up to. But we do have this song. We sang it just a moment ago before I got up here. Uh, that says a little bit about the wicked prospering. And uh, it, it's a funny thing. I, it's hard to find these days. I, I guess it's fallen out of favor. Uh, we don't sing it much anymore. It's the song Farther Along. just want to remind you of what we sang. Tempted and tried, we're oft made to wonder why it should be thus all the day long, while there are others living about us, never molested, though in the wrong. Here we are, we're trying to live right. And we are tempted and tested. But there are people who are living wrong. Nothing seems to bother them. When death has come and taken our loved ones, it leaves our home so lonely and drear. Then do we wonder why others prosper, living so wicked year after year. Do you hear the confusion? 
Now, this song resolves the confusion, not with a bunch of answers, but by saying someday we'll understand. And I wonder if our brethren haven't said, you know what, I don't know that we have a promise of full understanding of all the injustices of this life, and so maybe we've left off singing that song for that reason. I wonder if we will care about those injustices when the time comes. Whatever we say about that, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that sometimes we don't feel the security and certainty that we know is good. We feel anxiety, we feel confusion, we feel frustration. Sometimes God and the way God works confuses us. And I want to say that's okay. I want to say that that's exactly what psalmists felt. And I also want to say, while I'm happy to talk with you about that, sometimes I don't have the answers either. Sometimes I can't say, oh, here's what God's doing. Here's why this happens. The fact that I serve as a preacher doesn't somehow qualify me to answer the deeper questions like that. Here is what I want to say. It's important that we acknowledge when we feel this way. It is important that we bring those feelings to God. It is important that we seek God's answers of what we can know in Scripture. And it is important that we praise God anyway. We don't just praise God because we understand everything. Sometimes we praise God when we only get a small piece of the bigger picture. Would you pray with me about that? Oh God, our Father, we thank you so much for this time that we've had to open your word. We're thankful, Father, for these singers of Israel who have written down their thoughts, their confusion, and helped us to understand that we are not the first or the only ones to sometimes struggle to grasp everything you're doing and to see the bigger picture. Father, I pray that you will help us to be honest when we are confused and we don't understand. And yet, Father, not to run away from you in our frustration and our difficulty, but to come to you to seek your answers, and to continue to praise you for what we do know and do understand. Father, even though we feel this way, we still know that we are a tremendously blessed people. We know that you give us all that we need each day and that you have given us all things that pertain to life and godliness so that we can live fully assured that we belong to you and that we will live eternally with you. Yet sometimes, Father, we don't know how that plan is going to work out. We don't know the twists and turns of your will. We don't know why you deal with us the way you do. We don't understand the ultimate, uh, well, all the things that are going on in our world and how they fit in. And so in our confusion, Father, sometimes we get frustrated. Sometimes we get angry with one another. And Father, I pray that you'll help us to have a spirit of humility and a spirit of seeking your will to lay those cares on you. Father, we pray that you will continue to bless your people as we try to work, uh, work with you and walk with you, as we try to work together in peace. Help us, Father, to fulfill your will by being one and by trying to show the world that we belong to you. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. There might be someone here this morning who needs to respond to the invitation. This is the time in our service that we have set aside so that anyone who has a need of a spiritual nature can let us know about that. If you've never become a disciple of Jesus and you're ready to be baptized into Christ and have your sins washed away, this is a great time to let us know about that and let us help you do that. Or if there is any need that you have, we invite you to come to the front as we stand and sing to encourage you.